What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What worries me more than anything else is not sports or what's going to happen to sports. It's, it's the end of the investigative piece. Right. Because that costs money. Right. And that's what's disappearing. Right. You don't give somebody six months to do something not knowing whether they're even going to come up with anything anymore. Well, we can't afford that. Right. And, and that's, that's what's frightening because that's where journalism was most important and most valuable to society. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we have a 27-minute interview that I did with Frank DeFord back in 2013. I don't believe this interview has ever gone public before, and I think that it will be a remarkable way for you, the Edge of Sports audience, to understand why this guy was so singular. Mr. DeFord, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, I'm... Delighted to be with you. Just, I, I always ask this question of writers, get, give them the chance with the first question, and just say, why did they choose to write this book? Why did you choose at this point in your life to write overtime? I didn't choose it. I was talked into it. <laughs> and, uh, That's I a new answer. In, in, uh, <laughs> which I was asked to do in Sports Illustrated, sort of remembering the early days of Sports Illustrated, or anyway, the early days when I got there in the 1960s. And Morgan Entrican, who's the editor of Grove Atlantic, said, turn it into a memoir, a whole book. I said, there's not enough there. Nobody cares that much about a sports writer. And my, my wife was the one who said pretty much, oh, come on. I've heard all those stories you told through the years. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a little more emphatic than that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I decided, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll try it. Uh, as long as I didn't have to write it so much about myself and more about the people I'd known. Mm. You know, I can tell you that your work made me want to be a sports writer. I read your piece, uh, The Rabbit Hunter, about oh. Bob Knight when I was probably eight or nine years old, and it kind of got under my skin and made me want to do that kind of sports writing. Who made you want to write about sports because you didn't have Frank DeFord to read? And actually, a lot of the sports writing that you came up with was a very different style and type 
than the kind that you and your generation uh, chose to embrace? Well, again, uh, there wasn't. It was something that I drifted into, the same way that I drifted into the book. I never set out to be a sports writer. Um, I I wanted to be a writer. Oh, Lord, as I say in the book. I wanted to be a writer from the time when I was eight years old and, and learned that I could write, understood that I could write well. Um, but I really didn't set out to be a sports writer, but I always admired the writing in Sports Illustrated. Got a chance to go there after college. And then, you know, one thing led to another, and sometimes life just takes you by the scruff of the neck. The magazine got bigger, sports got bigger, and I realized that it was a great place for me, you know, it was a great canvas for me to paint on. Mm. And so all of a sudden, I'm a sports writer. Mm. And, and, and look, sports, as you know, is a great thing to write about. Right. I mean, I've often said, hey, if you can't write sports, you really ought to get out of the business. I right. mean, there's drama and action and people win and lose and there's interesting characters. And so... Um, I didn't fight it, Dave. <laughs> yeah. I didn't fight it once I found out that, uh, you know, how apt it was for me. I, I'd love to talk to you about some of those interesting characters because people from my generation look at some of the people who you interviewed when they were young men and young women, and they've become icons. They've been put on pedestals to such a degree. <laughs> uh, we don't even really recognize them as human. They're more like walking statues. So. <laughs> I would love it if you could take us back and give just your initial first impression, no matter how raw, no matter okay. how off base or maybe on base. When I'm just going to name a couple of people, and I would just okay. love it if you could just give us that insight. All right, the first time you met Muhammad Ali slash Cassius Clay, what was your initial impression? I thought he was absolutely out of his mind. Okay, I was on a train with him, riding down from Albany, and he's talking to me. I think he was going through the beginnings of his spiritual transformation into Islam, but he didn't mention that. And he's describing stuff to me on an envelope, and I don't know what he's talking about. I thought he was certifiable. I really did. But he was also pretty enjoyable. Yeah, I was going to say certifiable, but charismatic. Could you feel the charisma? I I don't know if you... I don't think he was charismatic at that point. I think that came later. Mm-hmm. That would be too strong a word for him. But he was certainly good company. Gotcha. <laughs> and good to be with, you know, that, that kind of thing. So that, that was my first impression of Ali. It was crazy. So, so not, I wish I had saved that envelope that he wrote all his stuff down on. It would be worth a fortune. Though. Yeah, that 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 would like. But like I a, threw it away as soon as I got home. <laughs> <laughs> which which says What's something unto itself. Okay, what about first time you met her? Billie Jean King. I already was a great admirer of her when I met her. But I was all the more delighted with her. And that's a great word for her, delight. She's a delight to be with. And she was a delight then. And I was so impressed with her that she could live this this dual life of being a championship tennis player and at the same time really running a movement, I mean, right out in front of it. And her dedication, I think that's the first thing that leaps to your mind with Billie Jean, is absolute dedication, and the second thing is the enthusiasm, which is to say I was in love with her from the moment I met her. You know, it's interesting how many sports writers have said that. I interviewed Bob Lipsight, and he described himself being smitten 
when he met Billie Jean King. That's 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 a good word. And you know, Bob Bob has said that she really was more important than Jackie Robinson. Yeah. And I know what he means. I th- I, I sort of linked the two. But Robinson, through no fault of his own, needed a Blanche Rickey. Mm-hmm. You know, he couldn't do it on his own. Mm-hmm. Whereas Billie Jean King, you know, you know, she rode bareback. Right. She just came, jumped on the horse, and came all by herself. She's mm-hmm. an extraordinary figure in the 20th century of America. Okay, first time you met, first impression, someone who's gone through a lot of transformations in her life, Martina Navratilova. Um, the first time I met her, I think I was just, sometimes you meet people and you sort of, you need a while to to get to know them. And I don't remember any sort of first impression with her. And Martina, I went through, uh, I, I wrote something once which I shouldn't have. I was a little bit wrong. She got mad at me, you know, and, mm-hmm. and before that we had been very tight, and then we eventually made up. Um, but in the beginning, she was just a fat kid from Czechoslovakia. Right. And so, you know, it was more like my first impression was a kid. Mm-hmm. You didn't realize how smart she was at first. And and that's understandable. These are kids. Right. It takes a while. And not only was she a kid, but she was a kid, you know, from a foreign country. Yeah, from the... <laughs> From the Eastern I mean, Bloc, got... <laughs> in the closet, not speaking very good English. Oh, I yes. Mean, so I many... don't even know if she knew at the time mm. that, that she was a lesbian. I think that's possible. I, 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 I don't know. I think that she was going through probably a struggle with that, too, and a struggle with her, co- with, with her government, a struggle with her tennis. Amazing. You know, she was a mixed-up you know, teenager. Yeah. <laughs> I've had those in my house, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very combustible elements yeah. at work. Okay, wh- what about uh, someone you mentioned in the book? I would love the first impression you had of Mr. Bill Russell. Oh, scared to death. Yeah. <laughs> That's easy. Absolutely. Scared, intimidated, frightened. That deep voice of him looking at me like I was some worm. Mm-hmm. Who is this kid who has who has arrived from Sports Illustrated and dares to be here? Dares to be covered? You know, he was just like he didn't say that. I, this is this is the impression I get. You know, it's yes, Mr. Russell. No, you know, um, yeah, he he was. Um, did, did Bill we- was a very uh, in, intimidating guy. Did did Wilt Chamberlain have a, s- a similar aura of intimidation, or uh, was it different? Is a physical intimidation with 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 Will. I I don't I don't know why. And you know, obviously, I've met a lot of tall basketball players mm-hmm. through the years, but the sense of height with him and size and presence, um, I don't think has ever been matched. Maybe it's because I was young when I first met him. I had not met that many guys who were that big, but but Will just blocked out the sun. And so it was. It was. It was being just totally impressed by the by the physical that mm-hmm. struck me first with with, with Will Chamberlain. Mm-hmm. With it, Russell, it's the aura. With with, with with Chamberlain, it was the physical. With Russell, do you think part of it was political? I mean, you mentioned politics with regards to Billie Jean King, and Russell was also someone who certainly 
represented something bigger than just basketball. Yep. Did that add to the intimidation factor? I think so, because you knew he was a serious guy. Mm-hmm. So you better, you better probably, be on your game. Yeah. I think probably because I knew he was a serious guy, and because I was aware of what he was doing, um, and admired him for it, I wanted him to like me. Mm-hmm. And you know, sometimes when you want someone to like you, you, you know, you're a little more frightened. Exactly. You want to make a good impression. So, to yeah. use a sports word, you feel the pressure. Right. And I mentioned the the political part of the intimidation because when I was thinking to myself, have I ever been intimidated to interview somebody? The only person who came to mind was Jim Brown who's very much of that era, political. <laughs> and and, and I, that's the only time I've ever been scared, partly because I, I wanted to impress him yes. so badly. <laughs> there, there you go. Exactly. I mean, you're that way in life. I mean, not just as a, as a professional journalist, but when you meet, you know, a good-looking girl the first time, when you, especially when you're a kid. You know, it's the same kind of pressure. Yeah. I want her to like me. Yeah, <laughs> and it's so, so you validating. Act like a fool. You know, and I probably acted like a fool around Russell. Mm. But luckily, he, he stayed with me. Mm. <laughs> he gave me a chance. And then, and then one more for this, and I, yep. I, you're being very patient with this little name game, but I no, it's I like these too games. fascinating. Is I got to ask this only because the article is what got me wanting to write about sports when I was so young. But the very first time you met Bob Knight, your impression. <laughs> the very first time <laughs> I met back to tell you a little story. Good. I had to sort of negotiate with Knight to get him to do the story, okay? Mm-hmm. Because he hated Sports Illustrated. He particularly hated Curry Kirkpatrick, the basketball writer at the time. He finally agrees to do the story with me. He talks to some other journalists that he does like, and they say, he's okay, he'll be fair with you, Bob. So after these really negotiations, uh, I go out to... Um, Indiana, to meet him. Now, I've never met him, okay? Wow, before the rabbit hunter, you'd never met him. Never met him. Wow. Now, you know, it's not like I had even encountered him in a group. And let's say I was supposed to meet him on a Tuesday at 11 o'clock, and I show up at the office, the basketball office, at Tuesday at 11 o'clock. And the secretary says, oh, oh, Coach Knight is out hunting. It's tomorrow at 11 o'clock that you're supposed to be here. Dave, I never knew whether that was my mistake or an honest mistake from both our parts, mm. or whether this was a way of, of starting off, at, you know, by putting me down. What, Bob Knight playing knew. mind games? I find that incredibly yes, hard to believe. I so I thought to myself, well, what do I do? Instead, I decided this. The next day, I showed up, and I just didn't say anything. If he was messing with me, I was not going to give him the chance, you know, to enjoy it. I wasn't going to say, cheat coach, I showed up yesterday. No, I just didn't say anything. And mm. so the first impression was kind of feeling each other out after that. But wow. let's say I was very sensitive to things. Now, the answer is that I think we were up to 1 o'clock that morning. Um, talking about a million things besides basketball, so that after the first depression, we got along very well. Wow, that's that's very that's real. That's <laughs> I think Bob he, he's a smart guy, and I yeah. think 
once he decided, okay, I'm going to do a story with Sports Illustrated, then he figured, you know, I'm going to do it right. I mean, that's the way you should do it if you're being interviewed, right. you know? And, 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 and Bob was, you know, he was, he was smart enough to do that. Right. Now, is there anyone throughout your entire career that you absolutely wanted to interview but was not able to? Or have you, have you just gotten I, I every interview you wanted to think, do? I mean, there were. I grew up loving Johnny Unitas because I was from Baltimore. And I would have loved to have, you know, but that's that's hero worship. You know, mm-hmm. that's not really journalistic. And I'm trying to think of someone now, and, and nobody really pops into my mind. I mean, like, I'd love to interview and would have, say, Tiger Woods, okay? Mm. But I don't think he would have given me anything, right? Right. He doesn't give anybody else anything. What makes me think, you know, that he's going to come across... To me, right, and and uh, so it's like it, it, you'd love to interview Tiger Woods if he would take sodium pentothal first, and if he would reveal himself at all, yeah, and and that's you know that's the trouble. If you haven't got somebody who's going to do that, then you can be the greatest journalist in the world, but you're, you're going to be. You're going to be struggling. I can't think of anybody that Well, that, that relates – that's interesting you say because that relates to a point that you make in the book, which I wanted to just ask you about, is that you said that over time you've become less drawn to players and more drawn to coaches, people who yeah. are older, people who've had more experiences, of course. people who have more of a life to be able to share. Uh, you, you quote that terrific quote from Fred Zinneman. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what makes – what makes you think who she like? What makes you think she's like anything? What makes you think she's like anything? Yeah, because so often we project things on these yeah. 19, 20 year olds that isn't fair to them. But I did want to ask you this: Is do you you think some of that in the book? You know, you ascribe a little bit of it to to you getting older and wanting to talk yeah. to people who've also had a little experience. How much do you ascribe it though to the times that you know young people when you were starting as a sports writer were really seen as a motor force for change in the world? Do you think that has something to do with it, the changing times and the way I think young athletes are isolated and even infantilized and separated from general society? Is that is that connected to it at all? Yeah, I think I think that's that's fair to say um, that today, if I were 30 years old today, I would have a more difficult time, I think, relating to my contemporaries than I did back then when I was 30 years old. Because they're cosseted now, and they're surrounded, and they're all on guard. And and um, you, you mentioned, you know, somebody would I want to do a story on? Federer would be an interesting guy to do a story on, okay? Mm-hmm. But I don't think, if I were 30 years old, if I was Roger's age, and I don't think he would, he and I would particularly... Um, make a good story together because I think he again he'd be so much more on guard than the guys that I was doing stories on at the time right I, so I think you're absolutely right um, and part of it is has nothing to do with the nature of the times it has to do with the nature of journalism that television has become so much more important and print has become so much less important mm-hmm. Yeah, that that really. Gets... Today, you know, I said, well, you know, I don't want, you know, what do I need with a magazine article? 
Right. You know, I'll wait. I'll wait till sixty minutes comes. Right. That that, that kind of thing. I mean, in the, in those days when I was starting out, and I was very very lucky, an article in Sports Illustrated was a plum for an athlete. Right. And, so and it was it hey, could be a career definer as well. Yeah. Uh, all of a sudden. You know, you're a national person if you do an, if someone does an article on you in Sports Illustrated, mm-hmm. and of course that that's not the case today. So, but I, I think you're right. I think they were just athletes. Everybody was a little more outspoken at, at that time, and 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 willing to trust the press. I think if they had a good feeling about you, they really would open up to you. I remember guys told me things, you know, off the record, but were just amazing, amazing stuff. Right. Which showed a trust of, of of me, but it also showed that we were, you know, had something in common. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting because uh, you mentioned Johnny Unitas before. That's a big theme of the book Johnny U, mm. about the way all the Colts players really were seen as part of the city and living in neighborhoods where fans lived. And that that era is just dead as dead as chicken on a plate at this point. They literally were down. You know, a mile from me, you could go past a Sunoco station and see them hanging out. I'm wow. sure. I mean, guys worked in the morning in a factory, and, and and that's another thing, Dave. I mean, the athletes then weren't making a whole lot more than I was. Most of them had off-season jobs, except for the very few at the top. They were very, they were much more normal than the athletes today. Who, who, who may be nice people. I'm not saying that, and 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 they're not, and a lot of them are not necessarily spoiled by the money, but nonetheless, the the money, you know, as F. Scott Fitzgerald, is a difference. Right. <laughs> when when you got money. Right. And, and that's it's true. There's a there's a great story of uh of Dick Shap uh, picking up young Cassius Clay in his car for an interview, and Cassius Clay's jaw hitting the floor when he saw Dick Shap's car. And saying, "Wow, that's the most amazing car!" And you, you just couldn't. Ima- Can you imagine a reporter today in a car that would impress an athlete? It's pretty no. hard to imagine. <laughs> no, no, I can't imagine. That story will never up. happen again, ever. No, if you showed up in a private plane, they wouldn't be impressed. They wouldn't blink. <laughs> uh, it would be. I got a better private plane than you do. Yeah. Than you do. No, it's 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 just changed. I do think this though. It's not just athletes who've changed. I think from everything I hear about. Uh, politicians. Mm-hmm. It used to be that there was much more candor between the politicians and the press, mm-hmm. and 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 now that's disappeared. And of course, that's confounded even more by the fact that uh, there are Republican writers and Democratic writers, and, right. and you can't work work walk across the aisle and, and interview somebody. Right. So maybe that's not a good. Good example, but no, no, no. That I, 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 it's it relates to what you're saying about journalism, though, very sharply too. Yeah. About and especially when you have mechanisms like social media and Twitter, you, uh, you just go around. Any yeah, that's that's the other thing. Again, they don't need you as much because they can go over your head. Right, right. You're absolutely right. And and that I guess to, gets to my last question. I'd be accused of interviewing malpractice if I didn't ask you about your thoughts on the current state of the profession which, of course, has much different writing than the kind you did, but at the same time, much more variety of writing because of the Internet. It's just your thought on the current state of the sports writing game. I think there are more, and I've said this often, I think there are more good sports writers now than ever before, and I think part of that is it's a little more, it's viewed as a little bit more honorable profession to go into 
there were so many hacks um, that used to be in sports writing. Guys who really couldn't write a lick but just loved sports, you know. And and um, that's not to say there weren't always some good sports writers. There were. But they're now more than ever before. I do miss um, the long, thoughtful pieces. There just aren't that many places for that and, anymore. Um, and, I, and numbers have so overwhelmed sports writing. That drives me crazy. I mean, everything is explained by, by numbers. And, and there are too many numbers yeah. thrown at you. And it, it's sort of like we're afraid to stand up and, and, and state things unless, unless we have statistical evidence to prove it. Yeah. And I think that's a real decline. And that goes across the board. Don't make any difference you're talking about newspapers, uh, magazines, television, social media, whatever. It's the numbers that are just – so uh, on the other hand, I, I do get back to the fact that there are an awful lot of, of good writers out there applying – Applying the trade more than ever before. I, I just I don't know what I would tell and don't know when I go to colleges and and kids ask me you know how do I get into it I can't answer that anymore I don't know right I don't know how you do it right it's yeah. it's, uh, it's it's so tricky journalism the transformation that we're going through I mean there really hadn't been anything like this since Gutenberg I don't right. think no that's right it's it's uh, every, uh, uh, everything's movable and nobody types. I mean, it's just the ground is shifting underneath of us. And what worries me more than anything else is not sports or what's going to happen to sports. It's the end of the investigative piece. Right. Because that costs money. Right. And that's what's disappearing. Right. You don't give somebody six months to do something not knowing whether they're even going to come up with anything anymore. Well, we can't afford that. Right. And and that's, that's what's frightening because that's where journalism was most important and most valuable to society. Yeah, it's a stopgap to corruption. Yes. And, and that's that's a bigger question than just sports, for sure. Yeah, uh, and, 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 but you're missing it in, 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 in sports as well. I mean, mm. I, I think there's less opportunity to do uh, investigative pieces. I, I mean, it's, it's amazing to me that we miss steroids. Amazing. Yeah. I yeah. mean, and I'm as guilty as anybody else. I remember doing a story on Bud Selig around 10 years ago. I never even... I don't think I even brought up steroids with him. I was as blind as everybody else. So, I, I mean, but we missed it. We were, I don't know what we were doing, but we missed it. We were cheering. Is is there going to, I think, is there going to come a time in 10 years where we look at, say, the National Football League and say we missed it on the question? Well, steroids? I think we can say that now. I mean, now. Where we, we are it. missing it is what you'd we, say. We, 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 we finally got it. And, um. I think I was a little ahead of the of the curve there. Um, and it's just it's it's a hugely violent, brutal sport, and we've never quite acknowledged how much of its popularity is due to that. Mm-hmm. And and I think now, finally, that recognition is coming. I don't know what's going to happen to football. I'm not talking about the National Football League. You know, there's always going to be matadors in the ring. There's always going to be guys who. who Enough right. to box, but what's going to happen at the schoolboy level? Mm-hmm. When is when is say the Ivy League going to say, look, you know, we only get three thousand people to come out to most games, except for Harvard versus Yale. 
do we really want the flower of our youth <laughs> risking right. concussions when we've got 25 other sports? I mean, somewhere along the line, I think there's going to be a, something really important. Somebody really important is going to drop football. It's going to have a huge effect. Already, the number of kids playing it in, in those junior leagues has gone down. And, and it, well, so I, I, I think the change is, in, is is underway already. I mean, as you as you've written, the most popular sports in Baltimore before 1950, you know, involved <laughs> horses. For goodness sakes, so you know that the wheel does turn. It's and the NFL would be very arrogant to think that football will be king forever because tastes change, the wheel turns, and the steeplechasers could tell them. And, and I don't – it is so popular from a spectator point of view. And poor people have always been the ones who've boxed, right? Right. You know, it's that old business of you never find any sons of boxers boxing. Right. They were successful. And, and you're already getting football players telling their sons, don't play it. Mm-hmm. And, and you, if you ever have this disconnect where the people in the population, most of the people, the middle-class people in the population are not playing a sport, uh, something's going to change. Right. If it becomes a straight gladiator game, <clears throat> it's certainly heading, <clears throat> excuse me, in that direction. Wow. Well, that, that's a, a sobering but pertinent note to end on. Uh, Frank DeFord, the, the book is called Overtime. And it's absolutely brilliant. It was such a treat to read. Thank you so much for doing it. And thank you so much for being here on Edge of Sports Radio. Dave, you're very welcome. And thank you very much for those kind words. Mm. Frank DeFord, ladies and gentlemen. We'll be back right after this. And now a quick word from The Nation magazine. The spring books issue goes to press next week, and the lineup is awesome. We got writers like Eric Foner, Steve Burt, Vivian Gornick, Jedediah Purdy, Adam Kirsch. It is a remarkable lineup of intellectuals who are going to be telling you the books that you absolutely should have on your table or tablet. Check it out. And of course, The Nation is the sponsor of this podcast. Please let them know that it is worth their while to continue. All you got to do is go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now a quick word from the other podcast that's produced by The Nation. The second best podcast produced by The Nation. But I'll say this. It is a strong silver medal. And that is Start Making Sense, hosted by John Wiener. It is politics without all the boring parts. Uh, John's show gets posted to thenation.com every Thursday morning. It's an absolute must-listen for me. He gets a total variety of interesting guests. The sharpest political thinkers, the sharpest political conversations. Start Making Sense. It's politics without the boring part. Subscribe to it as well on your podcast app of choice. Well, that's all we have for this week on the Edge of Sports Podcast. You can always listen to back episodes at edgeofsportspodcast.com. Thank you to David Tigaboo, who's riding solo this week as producer. Shout out to Dan Baker, who's somewhere out there in the universe. Peace to all our listeners. Please remember, go to iTunes, leave some sort of rating, leave some sort of message. It makes a huge difference for the growth of the show. We are out of here. Stay frosty, everybody. Peace.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.